This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, it's great to have you along today. After half past 12 today, heading into the sale yards where WA mutton prices are now trading 14% higher than the eastern states. Now, don't get me wrong, these prices aren't uh, worth celebrating. I mean, they're really low, but it is interesting that the WA mutton prices are higher than the prices in the eastern states. We'll take a look at what's going on to create that scenario. Also, you are going to meet Eli Carlton, who's a ringer in the Kimberley. I haven't grown up on the station. I've been, I've been a little tosshead when I was back in Canada. I was a criminal. Till the day came and I got an opportunity to go do a contract. And then I thought to myself, like, nah, this is, this is going to be me. I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I want to inspire my siblings and stuff and tell them what's out there for them. And Eli really loves being a ringer. He's worked all over the place and just loves the work. You'll meet him shortly, 6 past 12, here on the Country Hour. An industry and government trade delegation flew out of Perth early this morning en route to Thailand, where a new market access deal to send WA avocados into Thailand will take place on Wednesday. It's a great win for the local industry, which already has exclusive access to the Japanese market and hopefully the Indian market in the near future, although that market should be open to all avocado states, not just WA. Brad Rogers is a WA director and Avocados Australia chairman. He also owns Carry Brook Estate in Manjimup, and he grows Hass avocados, black truffles and premium wine grapes. Brad, why is WA the only state in Australia to have access to this Thai market? So we have that privilege because we are protected by distance from the east coast. They've got a couple of, uh, one particular pest that is a problem for these countries. They do not want any chance of that pest, which is a fly, the uh, Q fly, Queensland fly, getting in to their uh, markets or into their agricultural sector. So because we have freedom from that in WA, uh, which is monitored by our friends at DPIRD, um, and we thank them for that because without that, we would not be able to gain access to these markets. So it's purely because of that. Now, this access into Thailand, which is, you know, the latest market to, to get access to, what's the fruit going to be used for? Does it go into the restaurant trade, into supermarkets? What do you know, Brad? Yeah, I'll know more after I come back next week, but I expect it'll be the same. It'll it'll be very mixed. So it'll, it'll definitely go into supermarkets. That's probably where the, the most will go. But it will definitely go into their uh, food service sector. That enables you to have different levels of quality. So your premium fruit that everyone listening would select when you go to a supermarket, you pick your best one or best few that you're happy with. They are premiums and they probably will end up being purchased individually like they do here in Australia. And then because there's different levels of fruit, like all farming, um, that gives us the availability to move different levels of quality, uh, which can help us with the supply-demand equation in uh, WA. And how different is the fruit that is going into Thailand compared to the fruit going into the Japanese market? So it'll take a little time to develop. We don't quite know everything about 
the Thai market just yet, but different countries do seem to have different specifications. So Japan currently are very happy to receive larger fruit. And so all of our fruit is sized in boxes and uh, we're not sure about Thailand. We actually think that they probably are going to be happy with a range. And in terms of you know the value of these markets, mm. what's Japan? Because you've been going in there for three years now. What's the size, the value of that market? Yeah, rising each year because it takes uh, quite a long time to develop a market. And just because it's open doesn't mean that straight away, it's not like the government's importing the fruit from uh, Japan. You've still got to do your business-to-business work, uh, build up your importers' relationships, and they've got to be happy with your quality and all the logistics. So it takes a while. But currently, we're sending around about 50 tonne a week to um, Japan, and that will probably rise as the harvest starts to grow um, in quantity over the next couple of months. Probably it's going to be just for WA, you know, somewhere between 2 to $4 million of value, uh, just WA, just this year, and it may be more than that. And then what are your expectations for Thailand? Yeah, I'd say it'll follow suit. So to say where that will be in three years' time, I expect it'll be similar. Uh, it may actually be more because we have had ac- we did have access to Thailand 10 years ago, So um, they sort of have a memory of that quality and that fruit. So it might develop a bit quicker. And of course, it's a bit closer. And with these opportunities opening up on the export market, does that help ease the situation here in Australia with the amount of avocados that are on the market and, you know, able to shift those kind of numbers to the export market? Or is it more about creating value for a, you know, more select Uh, fruit going to those markets. How do you see it? Look, it's a supply and demand balance that we're aiming to seek so that, number one, I mean, this category, avocados, has gone from zero to hero in probably 10 years, uh, where 10 years ago we couldn't grow enough fruit that Australians could eat. Uh, They just wanted it so much. So farmers responded and got on board and started to convert orchards across or plant new orchards, and, and now we just have really good strong supply year round so we can actually supply every Australian with how much fruit they need and we're currently eating around about five kilos per person per year in Australia Uh, so we do love avocados ourselves and uh, probably only beaten by the Mexicans who eat a lot more so we've got good supply all year round that's the main thing so we can use export to balance the equation with strong supply so that uh, farmers can actually win a bit and can stay in business and there'll be enough money in the in the whole supply chain for everyone to be involved. Well, we had your CEO, John Tyus, on the program recently and he was talking about, you know, fruit selling for a dollar a piece, which is not great mm. news for farmers who are trying to keep their businesses afloat. And he was saying that's partly due, as you mentioned, to that increase in production. Um, yep. He was saying it was a 75% jump in production in the past three years or so. Mm -hmm. Do we have an oversupply situation here in Australia? I would call it a strong, consistent supply. So it really is, again, a good news story. Um, The issue with all farming is that when things are right, they've got to come off or they've got to be taken to market. So you will have periods where the supply is stronger than others. But the good news for consumers is Australians are really getting used to avocados and, and it's in their weekly shop. And, you know, rather than buying 
two, they can buy three now, and um, and it's really affordable with the current cost of living. Um, it's really healthy and nutritious. So we just encourage people to take advantage of that. So you're not worried um, about yeah. you know the avocado selling for a dollar each. In the short term, it is an issue, but we're, as an industry body, looking in the longer term for sustainability and being able to manage this so that everybody, mainly we want to look after Australians first, can win. Um, so we're looking and we've got plans down down the line so that the equation of supply and demand, we can balance well. So I would say for people listening, take advantage at the moment uh, because it may not last forever. Does it put stress on, on the WA businesses here, the, the growers here in WA? Oh, it does. It does. Um, if you've ever picked fruit, it's, uh, it's, it's sad when you, almost, when you can't sometimes cover the cost of doing that work um, and farming for the year and all the inputs and you know, all those stories are true. The costs for all farming has uh, gone up exponentially. So, yeah, it is a sad story. But farmers are very resilient. We're probably some of the best farmers in the world. The advantage perhaps in WA over some of our East Coast colleagues is that we're a bit more diversified. So we don't sometimes just do avocados. So on my farm, we've got two or three things that we do and other farms in this area are very similar. So that's how farming works. You have wins in some things one year and not so much in others. And you've got to be ready for that because that's farming. This is The Country Hour. It's 14 past 12. WA avocado grower Brad Rogers here today. He's on his way to Thailand for the official launch of WA Avocados into Thailand, and that special event's going to be held on Wednesday. Brad, the National Chemical Regulator has banned the use of a pesticide called dimethoate as a post-harvest dip in tropical fruits like mangoes and avocados. What impact is that decision going to have on the WA industry? Yeah, it won't have any impact in WA because we don't use it here. Um, It has been used predominantly on the East Coast to get fruit into WA. It's been used as a as a barrier for problems with that uh, Q fly that I mentioned before. So it'll largely only impact fruit like shepherd or the um, early in the year fruit that uh, may not be able to make its way into WA. But for for our farmers growing predominantly has, there's no impact at all. What about the um, impact of this decision by the APVMA to, you know, stop that post-harvest dip with dimethoate? What impact does it have on the fruit that usually comes into the Western Australian market from interstate? Does that stop? No, it doesn't. So all they've got to do is change their practices. So the ones that were using it can't use it now. So what we use here in WA is we just pick the fruit in a hard green condition and it meets our state government's ICA 30 protocol. Um, That's available all over Australia. So other states, when they want to send fruit here uh, in the period of time where we aren't harvesting here through winter and before, sort of in the autumn period, they just have to use the same protocol, so it should be business as usual. So consumers will still be able to get that fruit the same as they do now. Is that a biosecurity concern for you then, Brad? Because if they suddenly stop using this post-harvest dip that they're used to using on, on the eastern states and it's all to prevent the, the Q-fly, uh, yeah. if they stop doing that, is that a risk for the WA industry with that fruit still coming in? Oh, there's always a little risk, Belinda, but... Um, we've been using that protocol ourselves uh, forever and that's how we've got market access into Japan and Thailand. Uh, And let me just say, Japan are the most rigorous 
that I've been involved with at checking things in that level, like you wouldn't believe, times 100. And so we're pretty confident that that protocol of picking it in a hard drawing condition um, and inspecting that fruit as you go, uh, and then double inspecting it again when you sort of before you take it to market is good enough. And it, it usually really only applies to the the shepherd variety of avocado. Mm. Do you expect that particular variety to keep coming into Western Australia from other states? I would say that will be probably the thing we probably will lose. So shepherd um, is a softer skin or known as a green skin avocado, and that is more susceptible to this uh, particular Queensland fly. So I would say we, that might be a casualty in this particular situation. And an opportunity for WA, for WA growers to fill that gap, I, I guess, in the marketplace. Look, definitely, yeah, opportunity there for, for that gap. And um, what we're wanting to do is let all of our supporters and retailers know that we've, we've got enough fruit to supply that period. Um, so we really, really want them to honour their pledges like Aldi have done um, and decided to be the first to go Australian fruit only. So we really don't need any help from any imports from any other countries. That really was the other big win in recent weeks, isn't it? The the celebration that, um, well, avocado growers celebrating Aldi's decision to exclusively sell Australian avocados in its 586 stores across the country, the first supermarket to make that commitment. How important is that to the industry? Oh, we think it's fantastic. Uh, we're always about supporting Australian farmers and this actually came about from a West Australian farmer and grower, a long-term one, um, started the ball rolling with this particular plan and it's come to fruition and so we're very excited and um, we look forward to that flowing to our other retailers. Brad, thank you so much for your time today here on the Country Hour and enjoy your trip. Good luck with the official launch. Thanks, Belinda. Brad Rogers, he is a WA Director and Avocados Australia Chairman and he also owns Carrybrook Estate in Manjimup where he grows his own avocados. 19 past 12. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Some Northern Territory pastoralists are worried a lot of their cattle won't pass the new skin lesion inspection standards for live exports. The stricter requirements were agreed upon to satisfy Indonesia's concerns about Australian cattle having lumpy skin disease. It's a decision that really worries Hamish Brett. He's a vet who also runs cattle at Waterloo and Willaroo stations in the NT. And he's concerned that cattle he would classify as fit and healthy may not be allowed on any live exports, boats, to any country. We've been hit pretty hard. Obviously, most of the Territory cattle have got various bloody skin abnormalities, um, which normally are allowed to go to Indonesia unless they're very generalised flybite or papilloma virus or something like that. I would have about 180 of my own cattle up at Kamali at the depot up there that we've been pulling out and pulled out when it first came about a month or two ago that um, can't go. But the, the problem, Matt, is at the moment is it's a very grey area as to what's allowed to go and what's not allowed to go and it depends on the regional vet officer at the time of the day um, and who it is and, and where they are and yeah we're finding it especially me as an AAV I go up and inspect cattle and, and put cattle into maybe lines and pull out the, the worst offenders that have that are actually suppurative lesions sort of thing like fly bite that, have, that haven't healed up 
I'll pull I'll pull them out and if they're generalised, but the other ones that are not infected or or they might be the they might be old ones that you can see the hide and the hairs growing back through them, which does not affect the animal at all. Um, I put them back into a maybe line, but lately we've been um, just getting most of them rejected. Right. So, so you, you've been in a situation as a vet where you've said, "Well, that animal is is fit to ship to Indonesia," only to hear later on that a, a gummit vet rejected it. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And and it's and I get annoyed because it's. Like I, I may as well not be doing the inspections because we're just we're just getting overridden with an animal that's fat, healthy, shiny in the coat, and just because they've got a few bloody old fly bites or high sensitive things on their neck or something, um, they're getting pulled out, and and I don't agree with it, and it's it's a massive issue for our industry, and and to be honest, our industry needs to get onto it because I can see it'll end up being common practice going into the future, and then where where do we? Where do we send our cull cattle? Especially like myself, I no matter how good a heifer she is, I, I cull. She's been fly bitten and got the hypersensitivity to it. I, I don't want that genetically through my herd. So now I'm sort of buggered. I was at Willaroo yesterday, prep testing a heap of heifers, and to say 40, 40 to 60, 80 of them are empty, and I want to to put them on on the boat and send them over to Indo, but can't because of the fly bite. So I'm sort of stuck with them. Can you send them to the Philippines, Malaysia, any other market? No, it's, it seems to be a, at the moment it might relax a bit. They've, the government's saying it's, it's only Indonesia where they're really pumping down on the, on the skin issue. But I've noticed and heard from other vets and, and exporters and that that it doesn't matter if they're going to Vietnam, whichever port, they're, they're cracking down on the whole lot. I would assume this has ruled out a lot of cattle in the north for live export then. Yeah, massive amounts. If you look closely, every beast up here would have some lump or bump or bite mark on it. That's, we live in the tropics. Buffalo's pretty well here 24-7. You're always going to get something something that bloody hurts the hide. Um, and, and, like, I mean, if we're facing this now with our knockout rates, like, what are the guys when they come off the floodplain in a couple of months' time? How, how are they going to go? Vet Hamish Brett, who runs cattle at Waterloo and Willaroo stations, speaking to NT Country Hour presenter Matty Bran. 23 past 12. In Jakarta on Friday, there was a meeting between exporters and Indonesian importers and this topic of skin lesions was a really hot subject of conversation. As head of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, Mark Harvey Sutton was hoping to get clarification on what will be acceptable from now on. He says, unfortunately, there's still a fair bit of, of ambiguity. Look, I don't think um, it would be correct to say it's been cleared up. What we did get out of the discussions was a very clear understanding of, you know, the conditions that cattle are raised in in northern Australia and they can have uh, various skin markings and all those sort of things that aren't lumpy skin disease. And so we were very clear about that. And I believe that the importers understand that very clearly. Uh, I guess it, what it comes down to is a process of actually giving the Indonesian government comfort around that. Because we've got to remember this whole thing really was a technical discussion. Uh, there were positive results uh, being recorded in Indonesia and they had questions about that. 
Uh, and there's a delegation of Indonesian officials coming over shortly, and that's going to be very important as well, just to explain how the production works and all those sort of things. But we always are very confident, Matt, that we do not have lumpy skin disease. We know that there was testing that took place after the initial uh, uh, suspensions of those facilities that proved it. So we just have to keep working with them, Matt. That, that That's the key. It's clear that exporters in Australia are frustrated about the situation. What are importers saying about what's happening here? Oh, I think there's a, it's a shared frustration because I think they know that there are uh, very good quality cattle that could be in the market but currently uh, do not meet the specifications under Indonesian government requirements. So there's a lot of frustration there. From an industry perspective, we're doing some work with the Department of Agriculture to try and, uh, through our uh, research and development corporation, LiveCorp, to build a catalogue of of, of images and things like that to try and make sure that there is a bit more clarity. I I can sense the frustration and I have some frustration myself, Matt, that there is uh, still some uh, ambiguity in the market, I suppose, around what, what cattle can go. But I think I think what we need to put in perspective is the fact that the trade has reopened. Uh, Indonesia is very happy for the trade to continue, uh, but acknowledge that there are still some further discussions that need to be had around what is acceptable in terms of their uh, specifications and their concerns around making sure that uh, cattle coming into Australia do not have lumpy skin disease. Mark Harvey Sutton, he is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, speaking to Matt Brown about the outcomes of a meeting held on Friday between Australian cattle exporters and Indonesian importers. 26 past 12, shortly an update from the newsroom and then off to the Bureau of Meteorology to check conditions right around Western Australia. First though, do you love what you do? Do you get so excited about your work that you just jump out of bed in the morning? Well, Eli Carlton does. He's a ringer at Napier Down Station in the Kimberley. He's had an interesting journey so far, but he loves the cattle industry and he loves his job. I like the environment. I like you see different country, you meet different people, meet different managers and all that stuff. Leading hand people as well, they, they, they teach you stuff that you don't even know. And once you get that, it makes you feel better. They inspire you to do other things and... And you get to work cattle, you get to be on horses, you see a lot of beautiful countries and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, I can see the smile on your face. You obviously enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, every every second of it. Yeah, I love it. Do you have any aspirations or goals within the cattle industry? You know, where do you want to end up? Well, I don't want to end up being a head stockman. No, like, why not? Because there's a lot of, you get a lot of pressure and a lot of, like, you like a lot of people rely on you, and it's like you, like you probably work at a place with twenty other people, and you got a you got a manager and a head stockman. The manager got so much stress on, like not not stress, but a lot of pressure on him, and so is the the head stockman, you know. And a lot of people walking up to you and asking you, "Oh, what I'm gonna do? Like, where is this? Can you help me out?" I'd rather be a a leading hand, like a leading hand where you like below a. Um, like a head stockman and stuff like that where you can like other people can walk up to a leading hand fella and you can or you can tell them what to do and you can tag them along on what you're doing you know but my goal is to get a a very long way with this like I want to get a long way with station hand and all this stuff
So your Napier Downs, Roebuck Plains, Newcastle Waters, did you say as well? Do you know where's next? Are you going to be at Napier Downs for a while? Uh, probably. Oh, and I was contracting, I was fencing contracting at a place called Tula. And I've been in another station at Henbury. Yeah, a few. But I want to I wanna go to different, different stations. Like, I want to go everywhere. Like, I want to be on every single station, you know, because it's so good. You just want to skip, like, you want to do a bunny hop to this station, that station. Like, and even home. Home, like, home kind of now doesn't even feel like home to me anymore because you go out, like, people you don't even know treat you, fa- like, treat you as a family, you know. It's, it's, it's pretty good. I like it. And a lot of people, like, a lot of other people, they like it. They, some, some people grow up on a station, some people don't. I haven't, I haven't grown up on the station. I've been, I've been a little tosshead when I was back in Kananara. I was, I was a criminal. But till, till the day came and I got an opportunity to go do a contract. And then I thought to myself, like, nah, this is, this is going to be me. I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I want to inspire my siblings and stuff and tell them what's out there for them. There's a lot out there especially in Australia. You don't even have to leave Australia to go be out in the real world. Like, this is this is the real world, doing all of this stuff. So from being a criminal now to being a, a stockhand at the cattle station, why did you decide to change? Why did you decide to take this path instead? Like, I didn't have, like, I didn't have people there to teach me how to be a man and stuff like that. Like, I did it, yeah, I did it to teach like I did it just to chain myself and I did it to take a role for my family like well especially for my siblings and because we got a we did we we had a lot of pressure from my dad and our dad is he's a he's a jailbird he's there's no one there to teach my younger siblings to show them and things like that so I do I thought to myself and I thought about my siblings and my mom and I just had to take a role and go with it and are they proud of you oh yeah yeah, hey, they're proud of me. <laughs> Are you proud of yourself? Yeah, yeah. Every single day, I thank God. Like I, I, wa- I wake up from sleep and I think like, holy, there's another day I'm about to learn. Like, and you learn everything. Like you learn something every single day, and from other people, and and it's it's pretty good. Eli Carlton from Napier Down Station, speaking to Michelle Stanley. 29 to 1. Jonathan Hopper is here with the news headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. The federal government will permanently extend the ability for older Australians and veterans to pick up additional work without their pensions being cut. The government has released its employment white paper outlining its plan for the labour market into the future. Pensioners and other welfare recipients who get, who get work will also be able to hold on to concessions linked to welfare payments for 24 weeks up from the previous 12 weeks. Opposition leader Peter Dutton has defended Home Affairs Secretary Mike Pizzullo over a series of alleged text messages he sent to an influential Liberal Party figure. Nine newspapers have published messages which include Mr Pizzullo's alleged calls for more conservative ministerial appointments under the former coalition governments, including Mr Dutton. Peter Dutton has said he believes Mr Pizzullo put the country first. And tonight's AFL Brownlow medal count is tipped to be close with Collingwood star Nick Dacos among the favourites to win. The 20-year-old is expected to poll well until injury struck in round 21, opening the door for other contenders like the Western Bulldogs' Marcus Bontempelli and Melbourne's Christian Petrarca. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you for the update, Jonathan. 28 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA.
Shortly catching up with the head of the Livestock Collective, Stephen Bolt, who isn't very happy with what he's hearing from the state government, from the Premier and the Agriculture Minister, saying that there is no link between the policy to phase out the live sheep export trade by sea and the current situation in the sheep industry here in WA with the lack of confidence and the prices being received in Salyard. So we'll catch up with Stephen shortly. And speaking of sheep prices, interestingly enough, WA mutton prices at the Salyards are now trading 14% higher than the eastern states. To let us know what's going on in the marketplace, uh, Stephen Bignall from Meat and Livestock Australia will be along shortly. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Bob Tarr with you today. Bob, let's take a look around the South Westland Division. Yeah, sure. So we have uh, generally fine conditions throughout the region, a little bit of uh, cloud cover over the uh, Great Southern, but uh, all in all, most places are uh, clear today, but um, temperature is pretty close to normal for this time of year about the uh, West Coast and uh, throughout mo- most of the region, but that'll certainly be changing in the coming days. So uh, we will have a trough deepening uh, from the north down the West Coast, and that'll be drawing down some warmer air. So across the, uh, especially Midwest tomorrow, will be uh, quite a few degrees warmer, uh, but also warming pretty much right throughout the region tomorrow, just uh, probably most notably in the Midwest. We'll start to see temperatures reaching into the low 30s from around Calberry down through uh, about uh, Molowa, Morowa, uh, reaching about the 30-degree mark for tomorrow. Uh, And then uh, things really warm up in earnest on uh, Wednesday. So we're expecting to see some uh, September records fall uh, right through the Midwest. So looking at pretty close to uh, 30, uh, 37, I think, for Geraldton on um, on Wednesday, uh, 38 in Molowa, uh, 37 or 38 in Morowa uh, as well. So some very hot temperatures for this time of year. Remember, it's still September, so uh, well above normal. Uh, temperatures anywhere, anywhere from about 10 to 16, uh, maybe even up to 18 degrees above normal uh, for this time of year. And that'll be extending right down to uh, northern parts of the lower west, some of the uh, mid-30s, and even down in the southwest corner, uh, looking at close to uh, probably about 29 degrees for uh, Bridge town Pemberton, very unusual for this time of year. So uh, that's another area where we could see some uh, September records fall is, is on uh, Wednesday down into the southwest corner. Then the trough will move inland during the day on uh, Thursday. So right along the west coast fringe, uh, it is going to be uh, cooler than on Wednesday, but uh, certainly the heat will still persist through inland parts. So now we're looking at uh, right through the inland part of the Midwest and down into the wheat belt, uh, now going to be into the mid or possibly even high 30s. Uh, and also the uh, Great Southern now uh, starting to approach those September records. Uh, and then also Salmon Gums 36, uh, Esperance 30. So very hot weather on Thursday as well. Uh, and again, we're gonna, still going to see some September records fall. Uh, and then the trough uh, edges slowly inland during uh, Friday, so uh, the very hot conditions continue over the northeast part of the southwest land division, so still uh, about 35 at, um, uh, sorry, not 
Meriden. Uh, Meriden's 33, uh, Southern Cross is 35. Uh, and then also uh, into the mid-30s, right up into the inland part of the Midwest, uh, whereas Geraldton's only going to be 25. So uh, much cooler about the uh, southwest part of the region and along the west coast, but uh, still that heat hanging right on across the northeast part of the southwest land division. Uh, there is a slight chance of some high-based thunderstorm activity uh, extending from the uh, it, it, basically the wheat belt down through the uh, coastline between Albany and Esperance on Thursday. And then the main focal point, if there is any high base thunderstorm activity on Friday, would be through the southern gold fields uh, down through the Esperance region. Um, not going to be much rainfall associated with that, but we will be keeping an eye out for uh, possible dry lightning. In terms of uh, when this heat is really going to break uh, and when we might see some rainfall across the region, uh, the trough will continue moving inland, so that, that heat will continue to ease on Saturday and Sunday. And then uh, a much cooler uh, change, we are going to see a cold front sweep through the region. Uh, the bulk of the rainfall is going to be over the southwest corner, but uh, likely to see some showers extending right through uh, much of the, the wheat belt and the Great Southern. Uh, not a whole lot of rainfall in the gauge, but uh, it is going to be sharply cooler, so by the time we get out to Monday, we're probably looking at only about 13, 14 degrees for places like Manjimup and uh, Pemberton after reaching almost 30 uh, on Wednesday. So a real sharp, cool change uh, for basically from a, a frost perspective, no real concerns in that area the next uh, the next week or so. We'll get down to about five degrees through some parts of the uh, Great Southern tonight, but then uh, pretty warm for the next several days. Uh, we will keep an eye out behind that next cold front, but uh, even on um, Monday night, there's still a pretty good westerly flow. So we're only looking at maybe the coolest location would be about five degrees at Southern Cross next Monday night, but uh, no real fr uh, frost concerns uh, during this forecast period. Well, Bob, certainly some hot days ahead in parts of the Southwest Land Division this week. Let's take a look at northern and eastern parts. What sort of temperatures are you expecting, particularly across the Kimberley? Because in some parts, there are, you know, people spending a lot long days fighting fires. For example, 230,000 hectares of land is burnt at GoGo -Go Station. So what's in store for northern and eastern parts? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it is hot up there, as uh, you typically expect with the um, sort of early part of the buildup. Um, but a little bit hotter than normal. So uh, many inland parts approaching 40 degrees, uh, going to be 40, 41 across the next several days at uh, Fitzroy Crossing and, and up around Kananara, uh, probably falling just shy of the 40 degree mark. Um, but yeah, otherwise, uh, it is just going to be um, hot across uh, northern parts of the state. So probably especially the Pilbara um, is going to be anywhere from uh, about 8 to 12 degrees above normal across the next several days. So we've been into the 40s in places like Marble Bar uh, and, and very close to 40 at uh, Port Hedland recently. And uh, that trend's going to continue and really extend into the western part of the Pilbara as well. So only about 31 today at uh, Exmouth, but then 36 tomorrow, 37 on Wednesday. So the very hot weather is going to be uh, extending right through the region uh, and then also down through the Gascoigne as well. So the Gascoigne, uh, fairly close to normal for today, but then uh, Gascoigne Junction, uh, for example, 32 or 33 today, but then uh, up to 41 by the time we get out to Wednesday and 40 on th on Thursday. So uh, that heat that is coming down the West Coast is going to come right down through the Gascoigne as well. Uh, it will start to ease along the West Coast uh, from about 
Friday, but uh, still hanging on over inland parts until about Saturday or Sunday. Um, and then for the remainder of the region, uh, there is some shower and thunderstorm activity right now over the far eastern gold fields that could extend back through uh, around Kalgoorlie uh, later today into tonight. Um, but in terms of uh, rainfall, most of the rainfall from that feature is going to be over the southeast gold fields and the Euclid, where you could see some decent falls of up to about 10 or 15 mils uh, overnight tonight into tomorrow morning before that clears away. Uh, further to the north around the um, the uh, south south interior district uh, it's going to be pretty high base so there is a risk of dry lightning but it is going to be just very remote areas that will experience that uh, and the only other rainfall expected is a slight chance of some very early season uh, showers and thunderstorms along the sea breeze uh, across the northwest Kimberley the most likely day would be on Wednesday but um, certainly going to see some of those um, the towering cumulus clouds bubbling up through there which is a I guess a sign of the uh, season to come, but um, yes, yeah, late September is probably a bit early for that, but um, with the kind of October, November temperatures, they're starting to get some more October, November type of weather. And the warnings this afternoon? Uh, yep, so we just have some strong war wind warnings along the Gascoigne and Geraldton Coast for today, and then Ningaloo Coast, Gascoigne Coast, and Geraldton Coast for tomorrow. No other land-based warnings. Great. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. 19 to 1. Hardly any rain anywhere in Western Australia over the weekend. The only readings of 5 millimetres and above were in the goldfields. Weibo recorded 8 mils. And then in the southern coastal region, Chain Beach, 6. And Erin Air had 7. WA mutton prices at the sale yards are now trading 14% higher than the eastern states. New data from Meat and Livestock Australia shows the average price for WA mutton is $1.13 per kilogram, while the average price for all other Australian markets outside of WA is under a dollar at 99 cents a kilo. Stephen Bignall is Market Information Manager at MLA. Stephen, how unusual is it to see WA mutton prices ahead of the East? Uh, it's the first time that this has happened, except for once in July uh, in the last 12 months, so in the last year. Friday was the, the first day that that um, happened. And what's the significance of it? I think one of the significant points is that Mouchet at $1.33 a kilo is paying the highest in the nation for mutton at the moment. And what is actually driving it is, is we're seeing an increase in supply in the East Coast, which is impacting the East Coast prices more than the West, if that makes sense. So uh, the reason that WA is outperforming the East Coast is because there's been an increase in supply of mutton in the East Coast and, and that has dampened the prices there. And while the prices are by no means great in WA, uh, they've been less impacted by this increase in supplies. Right. So, I mean, let's just say one thing out loud, I guess. The price isn't fantastic, is it? The price isn't fantastic. The mutton prices have fallen well over 50% in the last year. So the price for mutton isn't great. Can't sugarcoat it. But the West is performing at this point in time better than the East Coast. How much longer is this going to last, do you think, this situation? Peak turnoff for uh, lamb and, and sheep and mutton is obviously between September and December. So we would expect the supply to continue to increase. And often that does soften prices. So it is quite unusual. The prices are where they are as we head into the period of, of peak supply. 
if you look back over the years, I don't know, the last, and I don't know if you've got this at hand, Steve, but the last sort of five years or the 10-year average, just to put, I guess, that these sort of figures that we're talking about into perspective, if Western Australia is, you know, currently trading at $1.13 a kilo and combined all the markets in the east are trading at uh, 99 cents a kilo for mutton, what is it, what is it usually? So... What we do know is that the price people are receiving for mutton is the lowest in over 10 years on a nominal basis. So it's in line with the price that producers were getting in, in 2013. That is the historical context there. Yeah, that puts it into a very crystal clear perspective. What's the situation for you know other lines then? If we talk, look at lambs, what's the comparison between East and West at the moment? Uh, so that's the interesting piece is the heavy lamb is the best performing indicator at the moment that, you know, um, if those specifications can be hit, that producers are getting rewarded somewhat. WA doesn't have any lambs hitting the specifications of a heavy lamb. But in the trade lamb category, last week WA was performing okay. At the moment, mindful that Michelle won't go ahead today, is that the price for trade lambs in WA the sale yards are sitting third and fourth from the bottom. Only um, prices in Hamilton and Warwick in Queensland are, are fetching less at a trade lamb from a trade lamb perspective. And that's set to continue with the, the sort of numbers that you're expecting to go through the system between just sort of now and Christmas? The pricing that we're seeing, you know, uh, we do know that there'll be uh, more supply come on. The next few weeks will be interesting for the indicators, just given uh, the public holidays. So, um, Mushay will slide out of the indicator today for the next seven days and then obviously re-enter next week. And based on where the various um, holidays are this week and next, will have a little bit of an impact on the indicators for the next two weeks. But, yeah, we do expect that supply to increase over these spring months. Uh, good to talk to you, Steve. Thank you. Cheers, Belinda. Stephen Bignor, he's Market Information Manager at Meat and Livestock Australia, and he's just shot through a text to me to update some of those figures. I think he was just saying that we're currently trading at 2013 prices. It's actually worse than that. We're now operating at 2008 prices for mutton. So that puts that $1.13 per kilogram into perspective. That's the current average price for WA mutton, $1.13 a kilo. And if we look back at the five-year average for WA mutton, it was $4.45 a kilo. And the 10-year average for WA mutton prices, $3.78 a kilo. 13 to 1. Well, Bob Reid has farmed sheep for the last six decades near Esperance in Western Australia's southeast. He's also been a farm consultant and banker, and his advice to younger sheep farmers is you might be in for a roller coaster ride, but if you enjoy farming sheep, it might be worth hanging on. This might be be a little opportunity for the processors to get to get some profit out of what they gave away last year. There might be a bit of that in it, and I suspect that. Um, and I hope it doesn't take too long, but I suspect it'll sort of work out a, a balance uh, based on pure um, supply and demand. At the moment, it's being messed about by you know, lack of full potential uh, from the uh, processes with staffing and whatnot.
given uh, so many of those, those external factors, Bob, do, do you feel like there are some parallels between now and the 90s when there was that federal government involvement with the wool price crash? Yeah, uh, that'd be... Uh, you'd, you certainly hope it didn't happen. Sheep become unsaleable or unsaleable at, at your cost to get them there, then certainly there'll be uh, people exiting on that when we, if we run into that sort of situation. I hope we don't. Can you take us back to that time and for those who are younger in the industry explain to us what what happened around that time and and what what caused I suppose that collapse and what happened as a result well it was caused by by the reserve price scheme for wool which seemed to be like a manner from heaven for three or four years and until the uh, the purchasers and uh, our clients, if you like, overseas could see that we were controlling the price and there's something that they'd done for years, but they didn't expect us to do it. And so we built up a four million bale stockpile and set it on, on the side and said, OK, we're going to leave that there till uh, prices change. Well, it took 10 years to clear that. And so uh, sheep weren't particularly profitable while that was being cleared. So uh, that's when a lot of people, so many of them that had run sheep for a long time and they, a lot of them went out, yeah. They were assisted in in a way essentially to, to exit the industry as well and, and in many ways it wasn't through the sale of, of their sheep. They had to dispose of them themselves. Yeah, the flock reduction scheme came in you got a you got the bullet money just about to take them out and dig a hole and bury them. And it was, it was a sad and sorry operation for anybody that took took part in that. And pretty well over that next uh, 10 years while that stockpile was being cleared, ended up 70 million sheep less in the Australian flock uh, 10 years later. It's a lot of sheep. That's a big adjustment. That's mm. a huge adjustment, Yeah. Uh, I'm talking to Bob Reid. He's an aspirant sheep producer and uh, former farm consultant amongst the many hats that you've worn over the years, Bob. It's been mentioned in Parliament this past week that, that people are considering going back down that track. For many who have to euthanise, if that's what they choose to do, it, it would be their first time because we're sort of 30 years on from that price crash. Yeah, and it's what worries me. It toughened you up to, you know, your self-confidence and everything, you know, to go and do it in the first place. And a lot of the people that did it uh, and reduced their flock did it because they thought that it was their their responsibility to ease the numbers in the uh, Australian flock so that they could maybe get a more viable, viable situation. But it depended on the nature of the individual some it hurt greatly and others were in different situations like perhaps if you were working on one of the corporate properties or something and you were you were paid to do it and uh, they weren't yours and it wasn't your loss then perhaps you, you you'd handle that better but what worries me is that if they do take on that as a as a an issue in in the near future uh, then it won't be the same bloke pulling the trigger. It'll be his son or uh, whoever's taken over that place. It'll be a younger person 
and uh, yeah, it'll it, it'll hurt just like it hurt thirty years ago. Whereas if we, those thirty year guys had to do it the second time, they'd probably do it a bit easier. So no, it, wouldn't, it won't be pleasant. Mm. No, it's not a good idea. It sounds like, although it's three decades ago, it's still almost quite fresh, Bob. You know, it's something that stays with you. Yeah, it does. Yeah, absolutely. It affects individuals differently and uh yeah some get really badly knocked around about that those sort of pressures other others can handle it better or when i say better there's nothing wrong with being sensitive to something that's pretty rough but yeah yeah there there will be uh there will be repercussions in certain areas for certain people yeah for farmers who are younger and perhaps haven't experienced some of those troughs before and have been you know riding the peaks what were your, what would your advice to them be be aware that you're in a uh, an industry that'll be influenced continually by movements in demand you get movements in demand you get movements in fr- in price and that's the same with wheat as well you know you don't get away with it by getting rid of your sheep and going to wheat that happens it's the same but yeah, look, I think I think there's some people, humans, some are much more suited to handling animals than others. And if you can self-analyse yourself and you enjoy it, do it. If you don't enjoy it, you're only doing it because you think you're filling a gap or you're probably better off not doing it. And I think we've just about answered that question now. I see the, the sheep farmers that I see in our region, yeah, they're... they're world's best practice. I'm proud of the way that Esperance handles sheep and sheep matters. Esperance sheep producer Bob Reed with Tara Delangraft. You can read more on the story online. Just search ABC Rural Sheep and Bob Reed. Six minutes to one. Well, head of the Livestock Collective, Stephen Bolt, has been busy on X over the weekend, tweeting, It's extremely disturbing. Minister Jarvis does not understand the link between the announcement of the LiveX phase-out and the dire situation the WA sheep industry finds itself in. No confidence, no restockers, poor seasonal conditions, and maybe a visit to the bush is required, Minister. It was one of the tweets going around on the weekend. On Friday's Country Hour, Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis was asked if she agreed with the Premier, Roger Cook, that the current situation facing sheep producers is not linked to the federal government policy to phase out the live sheep trade. And this was her response. Look, more sheep went out by live export last, last year than the previous year. Um, the sheep, the 60,000 sheep went out this week, as far as I'm aware. So obviously the summer, the northern summer moratorium ended on the 15th of September. There were sheep going to port. I actually saw B-doubles full of sheep going to port on Saturday as I was driving up from my electorate to Perth. So the actual number of sheep going out by live export has actually increased in recent years. So it's hard to understand that farmers are saying that this is linked to a possible future end of live export. Stephen Bolt is a Corrigan sheep farmer and head of the Livestock Collective. Stephen, the Premier and the Minister say the current situation in the WA sheep industry is not related to the federal government policy to phase out the live sheep trade by sea. What do you make of their assessment? Uh, Belinda, uh, like I've said, you know, it, it's a clear lack of understanding about uh, the the confidence that's been lost in the West Australian sheep flock. 
as soon as this announcement was made by uh, the federal Labor government. So once we remove the confidence, growers are looking to reduce their exposure to, to the risk uh, within this industry at the moment. So we're seeing growers look to reduce their flock size or sell down on, on breeding numbers. Uh, and that is the reason that we've, we've caused such a glut in the market. So there's no doubt the minister's right. There's more sheep going out by live export, but this is the, the key to this is the confidence that's been, been lost within the industry. And also we've upset the natural flow of sheep throughout the supply chain in Western Australia. So we've taken away the grazier demand for the West Australian sheep. So no restockers are, are entering the market because there's not the confidence to do so. Where is the evidence to suggest there is a link between the policy to end the trade and the current prices for sheep? Uh, look, maybe if the Minister came for a visit to, to growers uh, out throughout the regions rather than relying on uh, people within her, her office, actually coming out and talking to growers, she will understand why growers are making these decisions. So, um, you know, I'm at the Perth Royal Show currently and every grower that comes through is talking about, you know, the situation around live export and the reason why they're reducing their sheep numbers or, you know, where they're in despair because they have no other market option uh, for their livestock. The concern is that this situation will leave many farmers with no choice but to shoot sheep, which is the situation Bob found himself in going back over the decades. We just heard from Bob. What is the likelihood of that happening here again? Uh, look, there's no doubt, you know, I saw social media this morning, a more grower preparing a pit ready for destroying of livestock. Uh, you know, absolutely we're hopeful that uh, it's not widespread throughout uh, the state, but there's growers you know, particularly in the north and east where seasonal conditions are extremely poor. Uh, they have no feed. Um, there is no market for their sheep, um, particularly those that are in uh, that poorer condition. Uh, so the the humane thing to do uh, for those growers is to destroy those livestock. So that's happening now? Yeah, look, so I've heard of reports of, of um, multiple hundreds of sheep being destroyed on properties. Uh, so... I think we'll see that because there is no ability for those sheep to make their way through the supply chain uh, through local processing as mutton because there's just not the kill space or demand for those lighter quality sheep uh, that normally, you know, there is space for them. At the moment, no space for them at all. So if they sent them to market, they'd be losing money? Yeah, look, so, you know, grow the other day sent 450 sheep to the, to the yards uh, received a dollar ahead, so received four hundred and fifty dollars for those sheep, but in return has to pay a, a transport and yard fee, you know, of twenty seven hundred dollars around that that figure um, for sending those sheep off the market. So you know, it's actually a cost to send those sheep that are not going to return value, and and agents are doing the same where they're drafting lambs. You know, those lighter lambs, they're drafting to cover the freight. Anything that won't cover freight, um, you know, will remain on farm and be destroyed. Stephen, good to talk to you. Thank you so much for that. Stephen Bolt is a Corrigan farmer and head of the Livestock Collective. Just before the news, a bushfire in the Shire of Windham East Kimberley is now posing a threat to lives. So a watch and act is in place for people on or near Lake Argyle Road, including the Argyle Homestead Museum to Lake Argyle Dam Wall. 
the alert level for this fire has been upgraded because it has run. So there is now a possible threat to lives and homes. Updates throughout the day on ABC Kimberley. Good to talk to you today. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.